0: Psalm 32, I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place, thou shalt preserve me from trouble, thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusts in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all you that are upright in heart. Psalm 32 is one of seven psalms that we call the penitential psalms. They're found in Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, and Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. Uh, These are psalms of confession. Uh, They detail the process of conviction and confession and cleansing of sin. Uh, they're extremely valuable for Christians because we know that the path to joy is always found through repentance and forgiveness. There is no greater joy than knowing that you're forgiven of your sin. And Psalm 32 includes both instruction and insight for, for the believer. Oh, we're, we're confronted with both the reality and the consequences of sin, but we're also reminded of the cleansing and the forgiveness that God offers to all who repent. We're going to follow a very simple outline. We're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 as the joy of salvation. Verses 3 and 4, the burden of conviction. Verse 5, a personal account of forgiveness. Verses 6 and 7, the safety of those who confess. Verses 8 and 9, we have instructions from the Lord. In verses 10 and 11, we have a contrast of the wicked and the forgiven. So let's begin with the joy of salvation in verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 both begin with the same word, blessed. And this is a word that means far more than happiness. This this is a word that communicates joy. Uh, a sinner can only be happy in one of three ways. Either the sinner is ignorant of the consequences of sin. He has no idea that he's going to die and without Christ go to hell. And so therefore he's happy because he's ignorant. Uh, or he's deceived by a religion or a philosophy. There are many who have A lie from the devil, they cling to a religion or philosophy that has convinced them that they have no need to worry about their sin, so, so perhaps they're deceived and therefore they're happy. Or the sinner is born again. The sinner has been to Calvary and Christ has pardoned him, and that's why he or she is happy. But the sinner who believes the Bible and remains unconverted. Can never experience the joy that the psalmist is speaking of unless he or she comes to Christ. You know, we would do well to remember that all happiness is temporary except the joy that Christians have. Because when all is said and done, people who will be happy are those who are in Christ. There are no happy souls in hell, not a single one. There are no happy souls. In hell. So therefore, the only people who really have true joy, true happiness, are believers. Now now notice all the words that are used to describe sin in verses 1 and 2. You have the word transgression used, and this is a word that means rebellion. This is an intentional departure from that which is right. The idea is sinners are rebels against God. We know what we're doing is wrong, yet we do it anyway. The next word he uses is sin. That's a very generic word. It's a word that means to miss the mark. But please understand, this this is not an accidental miss. It's not like a guy is trying to hit the target and doesn't hit the target. This is an intentional miss. The sinner intentionally shoots far away from the target. He knows where he or she should be aiming, but aims away from the target and therefore misses it completely. And then the third word that's used for sin is iniquity. And that word means crookedness. It means to twist or pervert. Once again, this is intentional. And then finally, the word guile is used there, which simply means deceit. But not only does David use several words to describe sin, he also uses several words to describe forgiveness. Look at them. He uses the word forgiven. That's a Hebrew word that means to carry away. It means to remove. He uses the word covered. This word means to conceal. And then he uses the word imputes not iniquity. This means that God doesn't lay sin to the sinner's account. So why does David use so many words to describe sin? Well, perhaps it's because he's showing us that all of our sins can be forgiven that every single class and that every single kind of sin, dear friend, can be forgiven. Whether it's iniquity, whether it's God, whether it's sin, whether it's transgression, it doesn't matter. All of that can be forgiven. Now David was good at many things. He was a great warrior, he was a great musician, he was a great poet, he was even a great ruler. But never let us forget that he was also a great sinner. He was a great sinner. David knew very well what it meant to be a transgressor, to be a sinner, to be full of iniquity, to be deceitful. So why does David use so many terms for forgiveness? I think it's to show us... What's happened to our sin? He uses uses these new words now, and He's saying, look, this is what happens to your sin. I'm using all these words to describe sin to show you that all categories of sin can be forgiven, but now I want to show you how all of those sins can be removed. He uses these words to show us, look, your sin, as horrible as it was, has been removed as far as the east is from the west. It's been concealed from the very eyes of God beneath the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's no longer charged to your account because it was charged to Christ on the cross of Calvary. It was imputed to him. And so the reality of forgiven sin just inspires this wonderful joy in David. And, dear friend, it ought to inspire joy in us as well. You know, some might wonder why. The Christian has no problem recognizing his sin. We live in a day, an age today where nobody wants to talk about sin. Well, you're just a good person. Never talk about yourself in a negative way. Always think much of yourself. And they might wonder, why in the world do you want to go hear a sermon on sin? Why do you want to sing songs that talk about you being a sinner? But what they fail to understand is our greatest joy is found in knowing that our sin has been forgiven. And therefore, if we never think of our sin, and if we never think of forgiveness, we never give ourselves this opportunity to experience this great joy. You know, I'm convinced that the saints will out the angels in heaven. I have a real problem with people saying, when somebody dies, all they got their wings, all they're an angel. I don't care who they were. If they're a human, they will never be an angel. Okay? And, and don't say things like that. Don't say, well, my, my mom died, so now she's an angel watching over you. No, she's not. She's not an angel watching. She's a human being. These are two different classes of creations by God. And I want to tell you, I, I, I have a problem with that because when you look at Scripture and when you look at heaven, it's really important because I am convinced that the saints will outsing the angels in heaven. And why? Because the Scripture says, Thos, those who have been, been forgiven much love Him much. But listen to me, Christian. Not a single angel in heaven has been forgiven. You hear me? They can't sing of redemption The redemption songs are sung by the redeemed. There are no redeemed angels in heaven. So to make your loved one an angel is to say that they're not singing as sweetly as others are. The Bible says that angels kind of look at us and scratch their heads. I'm adding the word scratch their heads, but it says they look at us and they wonder. Wonder, God loves us so much and God atoned for our sins. But those those angels who rebelled and fell away, did, did Christ die for them? No. But he died for us. We're a special class made in the image of God. Now don't miss the fact that, that the first two verses of this psalm are also used by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 to describe the new covenant. So the idea is, is when Paul is thinking about New Testament joy. He goes to an Old Testament verse. And he goes right here to Psalm 32 to speak of New Testament joy. Why? Because it speaks prophetically of the forgiveness that believers find in the person of Jesus Christ. So there is the joy of forgiveness. The second thing I want you to look at is in verses 3 and 4. It's the burden of conviction. The burden of conviction. The psalm turns personal now. David is speaking of a personal experience he had. We're not sure what sins David was referring to here. Some people pair this psalm with Psalm 51 and believe that this is another account of David's repentance before God because of his ungodly actions with Bathsheba and toward her husband. Now I think the case can be made for that. But let's focus on what we do know. What we do know according to the psalm is David had sin in his life that he refused to confess before the Lord and repent of. Verses 3 and 4 is showing you a man who says, you know what, I'm not going to repent. David kept his silence concerning his sin. and, And some time even passed before he repented because if you read the psalm, you see that days passed, nights passed. And so there's a considerable amount of time that's passing, and David's not confessing this sin. Now why did David not confess this sin? Well, perhaps it was in order to confess this sin, he would have to make that sin known to others. Maybe that's why he hadn't confessed it, because he really didn't want anybody to know. And the only way he could make it right was if other people knew that he had done it. Maybe he had something to lose, in other words if he confessed this sin. And that certainly builds the case for the context being his sin with Bathsheba. Adultery and murder. You know, Satan would always have us keep silent when it comes to our sin. He would always have us keep silent. The devil will never lead you to confess your sins. He will never do it. But notice how unconfessed sin affects the believer. Look, David says his bones waxed old. that's the strongest part of his composition, became weak. He said he roared all day long. In other words, he groaned on the inside. There was a depression that was plaguing David. David says that the heavy hand of the Lord was upon him, that it rested on him day and night. And what hand is that? That's the hand of discipline. See, David felt an uneasiness in his soul because he knew the Lord wasn't pleased with him. David said that his moisture was turned into the drought of summer. You know, when a person is dehydrated, they're weak. David's saying, it's like the life has been sucked out of me. You know, it's important to understand that this wasn't simply David's conscience getting to it. This was the Lord active in his life. This was the Lord moving in his life. Conviction of sin is a burden that the Lord brings into our lives when we refuse to confess our sin. And you can't outrun it. There's nothing you can do. This is the hand of the Lord upon you. And so when you can refuse to confess your sin, let me ask you a question, because all of us have been there. All of us have been in those places where we weren't ready to give up our sin. We knew we should give it up, right? We knew we should quit, but we wouldn't do it. Let me ask you a question. When that happened, did you experience a holy heaviness? Because you should have. Because when the believer refuses to repent of his sin, the heavy hand of the Lord rests upon him. Even a divine depression can come. Paul calls it a godly sorrow. If you know the Lord, when you find yourself living in sin... There will be a holy heaviness. There will be a divine depression. There will be a godly sorrow. And the longer you keep silent concerning your sin, the worse you will feel. That's what David is saying. So, what a contrast! The joy of forgiveness, and then this great burden of conviction. And then he leads us into verse 5, which is a personal account of forgiveness. Look what he says in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. So finally, David confesses his sin. He does what he should have immediately done. And again, David uses three verbs to describe his action here regarding, uh, regarding his sin. He said that he acknowledged his sin. In other words, he made it known to God. Not that God didn't know it. But he told it to God, he talked with God about it. He said that he didn't hide his iniquity, not anymore at least, he had been hiding it. He uncovered his sin so the Lord could see it. And then he said he confessed his transgressions. In other words, he was clear with God what his sin was. He spoke to the Lord specifically about his sins. Now notice that David uses the same word for his sin, same words for his sin that he did in verses 1 and 2, only in a different order. You notice that in verse 5? You see the same words used for sin in verse 5 that you do in 1 and 2. It's just in a different order. I think we can assume that David spoke at length with the Lord. David had a lot of transgressions to confess. This wasn't some generic prayer, Lord, forgive me for all my sins. It wasn't that. This prayer was specific. If, if the case was with Bathsheba, as, as, as I think you can easily make it, it was like, Lord, God, I committed adultery. Forgive me, Lord, God. I killed a man. It was that specific. He confessed his transgressions. And by the way, that's the way that we should confess our sins. That's how we're uncovering them. That's how we're acknowledging them. That's how we're not hiding them. We're saying, Lord, this is what I did. Now look at how the Lord responded to David's prayer. It says the Lord forgave him. Boy, isn't that simple. Amen. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. You know, what are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? What will the Lord do if we confess our sins, church? We have much to fear if we do not confess our sins, but we have nothing to fear if we do confess our sins to Him. Amen? If we confess our sins, we can expect nothing but mercy and grace. We can expect nothing but cleansing and comfort if we confess our sins. Well, friend, have you experienced that? And I hope you have. Because it is a great blessing to have the burden of conviction removed from your life. What a blessing it is. There's no reason to walk through this life carrying the burden of your sins, because it will make for a miserable existence if you choose to do so. An absolute miserable existence. So David simply says, This is what I did. I got real with God. I got honest with God. I told God of my sins. And He forgave me. Probably no murderers in here tonight. Amen? So if He forgave David, certainly He'll forgive you. Now in verses 6 and 7, we see the safety of those who confess. David makes it clear that he hopes his experience is going to be a tool to help other people. He says, for this, which means therefore. In other words, in light of everything we've read in verses 1 through 5, David says, I'm going to give you some instruction now. You know, we don't always have to learn through personal experience. We don't. We can learn through the experiences of other people. Charles Spurgeon said, Where one man finds a golden nugget, others feel inclined to dig. Amen? Well, David found a golden nugget here. That if we confess our sins, that He is faithful and just. And you and I need to dig into that and say, you know what, guess what, I don't want to wait like David did. David waited and we saw all that he went through. I'm going to take the golden nugget out of his hand and simply confess my sins immediately. See, David, he doesn't want the reader to experience the sorrow that he experienced by not confessing his sins. He wants believers to confess their sins very quickly, and he explains what happens when we do so. Look what he says. He says, when you do that, he says, you're going to find the Lord. You know, you can sense a warning there as well. David wants us to confess our sins while the Lord is still offering us grace. Now, surely if you're convicted of your sin, the Lord is near. Amen? That's why you're convicted. Because the Lord is near. But sin can harden your heart. Sin can absolutely harden your heart, and you can become deaf to the voice of God if you resist the Spirit. But the good news is, if we confess, we will find the Lord always eagerly waiting our repentance. He's always awaiting it. Always wanting it. So so when you do that, you will find the Lord... And then he says that the floods of great waters won't find you. The imagery there is of a great river that's flowing, rushing down. And and there you are, worried that this great current is about to wash you away. And and rivers, when the floods came in in, in that region, could be very dangerous. And we're reminded of the flood of Noah's day, even when we look at this text here, and, and how the Lord protected His own when the floods came. But listen to me, church. Those in Christ are safer than those who are in the ark. Amen? Those who are in Christ are safer than those who are in the ark. Because guess what happened to the ark? It found some dry land, and everybody got off, and then everybody died. Eventually. I fast-forwarded a little bit, but they did. But listen, those who are in Christ will find ourselves on the shores of heaven when we land those in Christ are safer than those who were in the ark and so when the floods come the flood of judgment the flood of God's wrath it's not going to find us we're safe and then he says that the Lord will be our hiding place you know the Lord is a shelter psalms makes that clear is a shelter to all those who know him he he preserves us from trouble And the interesting thing is that David is now hiding in the one he once hid from. Isn't that interesting? The psalm starts, David's hiding from the Lord. Now guess what? He's hiding in the Lord. And so it is with us. But before we knew Christ, we hid from our God. We were like Adam and Eve not wanting to come near God. And we hoped that God wouldn't find us in our sin. But but when we confessed our sin and came to Christ, guess what He did? He placed us in Christ Himself. And the New Testament says that you and I are hidden in Christ. We are in Christ. And I want to tell you something. There is no safer place than being in Christ. And so we may have thought how dangerous it would be to confess our sins to God. We may have thought that pleading guilty to God and saying, God, yes, I did all these things would simply set the judgment of God in motion against us. But the opposite is true, friend. The opposite is true. When we reveal our sin to God, He hides us from His own judgment by placing us in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we plead guilty, we find safety. Amen? Isn't that exactly opposite? I mean, find a cop and confess to him what you did. He's going to put cuffs on you. Amen? You're in trouble and you probably should go to jail. But oh, we got a God of grace. Amen? That when we come confessing, there are no cuffs. There is no sentence. There's only forgiveness. What wonderful safety we have in the Lord. In verses 8 and 9... We have instructions from the Lord. Look at this is I want to read these. These are interesting. Verse 8 I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with my eye. Be ye not as the horses as the or as the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. So the Lord interrupts David's Psalm in verses eight and nine you have the Lord speaking. And in verse eight, again we got three verbs. The Lord says, I will instruct you, I will teach you, I will guide you. You see, the Lord not only forgives us and hides us, the Lord leads us into righteous living. Uh, Notice that the Lord has His eye on us. I think that there are those who are thinking that the Lord has His eye on them simply to see if they mess up. But dear friend, if you know Christ, the Lord is watching you to lead you. That's why He's watching you. He's watching you to lead you. God wants to guide you in this world and He guides you through His Word. But if you're not in the Word, you shouldn't expect to be taught by the Lord. Because what we learn in the Bible is what we're to live in the world. Now in verse 9, the Lord tells us not to be like stubborn farm animals, Not to be like horses, not not to be like mules, because those things are worthless unless they're bridled. And so the idea is it doesn't bring God pleasure to lead us simply through discipline. God doesn't want to lead you that way. God doesn't want to teach you that way. If all we ever learn is through the disciplining hand of the Lord, it will be difficult to experience the abundant life that God wants you to have. See, we need to learn from the Bible, not the bridle. Right? We need to learn from the Bible, not the bridle. And God will steer us in discomforting ways if He must. You know, I can't imagine what it feels like to a horse or a mule to have that bridle in their mouth. But if God's got to steer us in a discomforting way, He will do that. But it is best if we learn from His Word and not His whip. He wants to teach us. Now now notice here that the Lord says the horse and the mule need a bridle or they won't come near you. Pull them. And a jerk on them. Even if you're their owner. Oftentimes they're, they're trying to get away from you, You have to yank on them, come back. He's saying that shouldn't be the case with you. You should draw near to God because of His goodness towards you. It shouldn't take awful occurrences in your life for you to draw near to God. God shouldn't have to break out the belt to get your and I's attention. Because that's what you do to farm animals. We have to guard against rebellion. And the best way to guard against rebellion is to be in God's Word. To allow the Lord to instruct us, to teach us, to guide us, as He said that He wanted to do back in verse 8. And now that brings us to the final two verses, which is a contrast of the wicked and the forgiven. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusts in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all you that are upright in heart. Look what David says about the wicked. He says the wicked are going to have many sorrows, constant woe. Well, by the way, this is especially true when the wicked die. Their woes are endless. Their sorrows never cease. Those who refuse to come to Christ in this life will not come to Christ in the next life. They'll spend an eternity attempting to pay for their own sins. And that should move all of us. That should move all of us. Hell is awful, but it's reality. And there will be nothing but sorrow there. And that ought to break our hearts, Christians. And now we contrast the wicked with the forgiven. Look at how they're described in verse 10. Those who trust in the Lord... The forgiven are surrounded by the mercy of God. Now go back in verse 7, and we're surrounded by songs of deliverance. And then in this verse, we're surrounded by the mercy of God. And it's true that those who have been forgiven praise the one who forgave them, right? That's absolutely true. And so while the wicked have endless woes, and the only music they hear are the wails and screams and awful echoes of ungodliness for all of eternity. Contrast that with the righteous. And the righteous are surrounded by the mercy of God, and all they hear is joyous celebration of forgiveness and grace for all of eternity. You see the contrast there? We often think of the feeling of hell, but we never think of the sounds of hell. And they are awful, friend. The wicked are no doubt cursing God in hell. But but look at what the righteous do in verse 11. They're rejoicing. Hey, and by the way, there's no reason for us to wait until we get to heaven to praise the One who has forgiven us. Amen. We should just be glad in the Lord right now. We should rejoice right now. We should shout for joy right now. And why should we do all those things? Because we are the upright in heart. We came to God confessing our sin and He forgave us and He imputed His own righteousness to us. As I mentioned earlier, Paul quoted this psalm in Romans chapter 4 and made it clear that this psalm applies to the Christian when he said this, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord will not impute sin. That's how the psalm began. And Paul uses it in the book of Romans to describe the salvation that comes in Christ. And do you know why the Lord does not impute sin to you? The word impute means to charge to your account. He does not charge it to your account because your sin has been charged to the account of Christ. Your sin has been imputed to Christ. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The sin that you and I have imputed to Christ and He paid for it on the cross and the righteousness of Jesus imputed, given to your account so that when you stand before God, you stand before Him wrapped in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ and your sins are at Calvary. Amen? Man, there's joy in that. See, friend, we are a blessed people. Because we are a forgiven people. Amen? We are a blessed people. Because we are a forgiven people. And if the preachers quit preaching on sin, the people will forget that they have been forgiven. There is joy. Joy, joy, joy. In knowing that you came to God as a sinner confessing. But you left as a saint. Righteous and clean. And protected by His very grace. Amen. Father, we love you. We thank you for this word tonight. Use it in our life to inspire joy. In Jesus' name, amen.